You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Thanks for leading us to worship and thanks for participating. I'm Johnny. I'm the pastor here, but my, my friend Andrew, my brother Andrew, is going to come up and offer us a message. Now, Andrew is a... Uh, He's one of our worship leaders. He's written a lot of songs that we sing. He serves on our Compassion Corps team. He's an attorney that works for so- Social Security Disability, right? That's, that's the field. And he, he also helps lead our Circle Mobilizing because Black Lives Matter team. And he makes delicious smashed burgers and also does things like kendo and knows all sorts of different facts about all sorts of subjects. So. That's my uh, introduction to, for, uh, to Andrew for you, one of my favorite people. Here's Andrew Yang. Oh my gosh. Thanks, Johnny. Can we get the passage up? Um, so I figured we'd just start this the way we always do, which was have somebody read the passage. Um, if we could have a volunteer, we could have the mic somewhere. Johnny has the mic. Trusting. Ah, there we go. Now we're talking. All right. So now the apostles and the brothers and the sisters who were in the Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from the heaven, being lowered by its four corners. It came close to me. As I looked closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea, uh, or Caesarea? Caesarea. Caesarea. Uh, arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave us, uh, if God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, 
They were silenced. And they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the, re the repentance that leads to life. Thanks, Julius. This is the word of the Lord. If you could pray with me now. Lord, let the meditations of my heart, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Um, amen. The last time I was up here was a week before the lockdown, as Jordan reminded me. Uh, a week before the lockdown, and I, I, if you listen to the recording, I actually say at one point, I cough because I had a cough. I was sick. And I said, I'm pretty sure I don't have the virus. And I just went on with the whole, with the whole thing. It was a, no one cared. It was, it was a wild time. And Jordan reminded me that a week before that, Bryant was sick and was just like on tech and he just like did the thing and he was like, I wiped everything down. He was doing communion. Uh, so it's weird uh, to, to, to see how far we've come since then. Um, at that time, I was giving the talk here and uh, I had come back from San Jose. I, was, I had been in San Jose about a month before for a participatory defense uh, gathering, gathering of participatory defense hubs from all over the country. And uh, when I was there, I had a conversation with my friend Chris on the bus and, and uh, we, we talked during that trip about how the common experience of having dads that were really weird um, dads that ha were both kind of uh, insular and unexpressive and, and prone to locking themselves up and paying attention to their own particular hobbies um, or their weird interests and having our mothers as their only confidants. Um, an actually pretty common experience, we realized. Um, and it's amazing how many times I've had that conversation with other people. Um, conversations about how their dads are just completely isolated and, and disconnected. Um, I'm sensitive to this because I've been thinking a lot about that process of how you become so stuck. Uh, because I'm aware of this tendency in myself, um, this impulse to avoid the discomfort of anything new or anybody new the tendency to stay with things that have worked for me, um, to stick with the things that I know and am familiar with. And I think that's a process that a lot of, it's an it's encounter that a lot of people have in middle age, I suppose, where they re reach this part where they, there certain things have worked for them. Um, and if they're not careful, they might just get stuck in them and become weird dads. Uh, if you ever walk around City Hall around lunchtime, you'll see all the attorneys, all the city attorneys walking around, uh, and they're wearing these boxy suits, these boxy American suits with these wide ties that go past their belts, and they're just, they're, they, they're just too big. Um, someone once told me that dads wear, the, dads wear the, the clothing that they wore the last time they were cool. 
Uh, and that has always stuck with me, because I think to myself, because um, I used to kind of think to my, I, that's, that's what I used to tell myself as I saw these older men walking around in these suits, um, in a kind of smug way, I suppose. Um, coming out of the pandemic, I am realizing that my own sense of fashion is out of date. <laughs> That my suits, you know, I used to be very proud of my, as an attorney, I have worn, I wear suits on a regular basis. My suits, uh, completely compliant with the, ortho, the fashion orthodoxy of the 2010s, tapered legs, shoulders that line up, uh, skinny ties that don't go past the belt. You know, I knew, I knew the rules, um, and now the rules don't matter. The rules are non-existent now, and it's a scary time for millennials. Uh, I was seeing a post on Facebook about a friend struggling, saying something like, I guess now's the time where I decide whether I, I'm just going to be unfashionable with skinny jeans for the rest of my life and just commit to it, or whether I'm going to adapt to the times. Um, I'm realizing how, in, in so many ways, I myself am a, uh, am a millennial stereotype. Uh, from, from those skinny times, uh, from the, the, the fact of those skinny ties uh, to the fact that uh, Amy and I had Harry Potter themed engagement photos. You know, it's very, and even the act of worrying about whether skinny jeans are fashionable is itself a millennial stereotype. Nobody else cares. Um, I'm conscious of this, of these artifacts of this particular process of aging because I'm realizing well, because I'm afraid that these things, these small things that I can get stuck in, that I don't want to change, are indicative of something bigger. Because I think, at least in my experience, I've seen the ways that this intransigence, that this reluctance to change, this difficulty to adapt, has become kind of poisonous. Um, Weird dads, you know, is a benign way to put it. Um, but a lot of us have had the process of conspiracy theories about contrails, just something benign, become a, an obsession with QAnon, or suspicion about healthcare bureaucracy, become vaccination denial, just the ways that these kind of quirky things become uh, dangerous things or scary things. And this can happen to institutions too. Uh, churches too can become resistant to change and, and kind of ossify, just harden in a way uh, that before you know it, you have 10 people who are meeting in a building that's 150 years old because that's the, just what they've always done. Um, the lectionary has been guiding us through the book of Acts and this week has dropped us into this story of Peter meeting the centurion Cornelius. Um, to summarize, there is a centurion named Cornelius. He is a good person. We know he's good because he gives to the poor. The passage tells us that. Uh, he has a vision that he's supposed to summon Peter. Peter is an apostle of Jesus. Peter also has a vision, the vision that we see described here in this passage where he's told not to call what God has made clean, un, has made clean unclean. Um, so the men from Cornelius show up and ask Peter to come with them, and Peter has this kind of crisis, because as an observant Jewish person, he's not supposed to associate with or enter the house of a Gentile. But because of this vision, he decides to go with them. 
He goes with them. He sees that God is at work with them. Um, and uh, he tells them about Jesus. So there's a lot, of course, that we can learn from Peter's experience with Cornelius. Um, but uh, in terms of the context of this passage, uh, I do want to highlight that the early church at this moment, before Peter encounters Cornelius, is an exclusively Jewish movement. And the, the, the church at this point is made up of Aramaic-speaking Jews, the Hebraic faction, or called the Hebrews sometimes in Acts, or, or the, the, circ- the circumcision faction. There's also the Hellenistic Jews, uh, who are more Greek-speaking. Uh, and what Peter does here is expand the boundaries of the movement in a way that not even Jesus has done so far. The, Luke, uh, the author of Luke Acts talks about Jesus having an encounter with the centurion um, and not entering the centurion's house to heal that person's servant. Peter, in this instance, has gone farther than what Jesus has done. He is expanding the boundaries of the movement uh, in a way uh, that hasn't been done before. Um, But that story of Peter going to Cornelius' house is not the story that we're looking at in this passage. The lectionary skips over that. Uh, I guess maybe in another year we'll come back to it, but this year the lectionary has us skipping over that and looking at this particular passage, which I think is, uh, I'm actually glad to look at because the interesting thing about this passage in Acts 11 is that it's not really about, well, it is to a certain extent, but it's not solely about Peter expanding the boundaries of the Jesus movement. It's about how Peter gets the church on board. It's about how Peter explains what he's done to his community, how Peter helps an institution uh, change. You know, I remember that story of Peter going to Cornelius' house. My, my, I have a vivid memory of being six or seven and uh, going to a Sunday school class. And uh, the Sunday school teacher was like on the table trying to hang a napkin from the ceiling. It was filled with animal crackers. And I was like, what are you doing? And he was like, you'll see. And then he told the story. And ever since then, all I can think of is a napkin filled with animal crackers. It's a very evocative story. Um, but what the author of Acts tells us is that when Peter explains, is that Peter explains what he's doing uh, by saying that he remembers what Jesus has told them. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift he gave us when, he believed, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? And the author tells us, uh, when they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying that, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. I think frequently when we only look at Peter's interaction with with the centurion, when we only look at Peter's story about how he expands the boundaries of the Jesus movement, we tend to see ourselves as Peter in that story. And it's easy to do that because he's, a, he's kind of a trailblazer. He's breaking an old structure in the name of inclusion. He's, he's doing this act of, of kind of civil disobedience, breaking these old rules. He silences his critics with one speech. He's disrupting something. Uh, but of course, in seeing ourselves as, well, as, in only seeing Peter's perspective, in only telling the story the story of Acts 10 without telling the story of Acts 11, 
uh, we do a disservice to our own experiences. Um, we forget that we too, as we move through the world, have traditions and habits that are well-loved and have served us for a long, long time and are often difficult to break. Um, the circumcision faction of the church, the, the Hebrews uh, of, the, of the church, as, as Acts calls them, had good, even admirable reasons for adhering to these parts of the Mosaic law. Uh, they're coming from a firmly Second Temple Jewish con context. Uh, Jesus himself mainly ministers to other Jews. He, he says that his ministry is to the children of Israel. These traditions, like not entering the house of a Gentile, are traditions that Jesus himself adhered to. Um, and they were, these traditions were useful for the Jewish people as, a man, as uh, in, in this kind of province of the Roman Empire in differentiating themselves from an imperialistic, exploitative culture. Uh, that tendency to be set apart still resonates with us in our tradition. Uh, the New Testament tradition tells us that it's James, the brother of Jesus, that later becomes the head of the Jerusalem church. Uh, and his epistle explicitly says that true religion is to care for orphans and widows and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This element of being separate has continued. We, we carry it with us still. There, we still feel that tension, the tension that Peter is feeling here. Uh, the tension of how do we set ourselves apart and how do we also include other people. So the passage uh, here is that the church is taking a gigantic step in terms of its inclusion. And um, what the author of Acts says is that Peter gives, his, gives this explanation and his critics are kind of are silenced and they praise God. As an aside, I wonder if it really was that easy. Uh, we, we don't actually know. The writer of Acts uh, is trying to make a rhetorical point here. He's doing certain things in his context. He's trying to affirm the authority of the apostles and the church in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, the, the how easy it is doesn't even necessarily align with other things we know from the letters of Paul or even later in the New Testament or even later in the book of Acts, rather. We know that um, the uh, Hebraic Jews were eventually uh, influential enough to cause Peter not to want to associate with non-Jewish believers. We know uh, that even if this faction of the church was happy to expand the boundaries of their movement, there is conflict just a few chapters later about how exactly to include them. So there's, there's, there's still unsettled questions here. Um, uh, but that brings me back to my original example uh, where I'm talking about um, how do we know when to change and to cultivate the flexibility to change? Because we ourselves as an institution have a number of things that have made us peculiar, uh, things that served us well for a very long time. When I talked about skinny jeans, um, I'm also thinking about the fact that for long periods of our church's history, we defined ourselves as an alternative that idea of alternativity, of counterculture, was important to us in the way that we presented ourselves and the way that we dressed. Um, I remember very specifically 10 years ago, a Circle of Hope being criticized for being the, uh, the church that's infecting hipsterdom with Christianity. Um, and we still have many different things that make us kind of peculiar calling this meeting, for instance, a Sunday meeting, uh, 
our cell groups, our core teams, our mission teams, these different kinds of things that have that we know, uh, these different terms that we know when we talk to each other but are kind of strange. So um, how do we know when a thing we have deeply loved and has been helpful for a long time needs to be disrupted or upended? And how do we cultivate the flexibility to change and move as opposed to digging in our heels and becoming more insular, exclusive, and weird in the worst way? Um, Peter convinces the Hebraic faction by telling them Uh, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just like it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God gave them the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? So Peter tells us here that one of the things that we can do is recognize the movement of the Spirit. The first thing that we might do is keep our eyes on the thing that originally binds us together, which is Jesus' ethic of love. The lectionary today has, us, has the gospel reading as John 13, 31 to 35, um, where Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Later on, the the author of that gospel, who is, uh, tradition says, is also the author of the the Johannine epistles, says in 1 John chapter four, that the way that we know whether something is from God Uh, The way that we know whether a spirit is from God is whether it affirms, uh, whether it affirms the sacrificial love of Jesus, that it affirms that Jesus is from God, that Jesus died for us, and that we love one another, and that this love for one another, this care for one another, and our communities is the signifier of uh, the presence of God. And you actually see that in Acts chapter 10, when the reason that Peter recognizes that the centurion is a God-fearing person is that that he explicitly takes care of uh, the poor around him. It's concern for the marginalized that marks Cornelius as a righteous person that allows Peter to know that God is at work in him. We should remember this because it it is easy to forget It's easy to forget uh, that our habits and disciplines, our institutions even, the things that we come up with are really a means to an end. It's easy uh, to confuse the lens, like a magnifying glass, for the thing that you're looking at. Uh, And what the Gospels in the New Testament affirm for us consistently is that we should be focused as an institution and as an individual, as on the ever-liberating love of Jesus. I remember a little while ago, well, a few years ago at this point, we had a, a meeting at somebody's house. A meeting at a, we had a meeting at somebody's house where we were trying to figure out how to do communion. This was way before the pandemic. There was a question about whether you should, we should use gluten-free bread. I was, I was not on board with that. I don't even, looking back, it's such a stupid thing to be stuck on. Gluten-free bread. 
I, I was, but I, for some reason, I, I was convinced in that moment that introducing gluten-free bread would, would break us from the tradition. 2,000 years of connection with the apostles and gluten-free bread is going to be the thing that separates us from the apostles, uh, which is so stupid. <laughs> we had people that, were, that didn't, couldn't tolerate gluten in our community. My, my, this, my, uh, my stance there, where, I, where my insistence on having gluten in our bread or else it's not real bread, as opposed to including people who literally have a health condition, is the worst. <laughs> what a terrible thing to, to believe. What a terrible stance to take. But I could have really dug in my heels there. Similarly, during the pandemic, we could have done what many communities did and decided that it's not real communion unless you do it face to face. Unless there's a presbyter or a priest or somebody that goes from house to house and infects them by offering them community, communion. We could have done that. And I understand that there are good reasons there are valuable reasons for face-to-face -face meeting and face-to-face -face communion. But for us, in our context, and in order to be conclusive, we put that aside, and every Sunday, Johnny or one of the other pastors would tell us, would give us a moment to go grab whatever you can grab and bring it back, and we'll take communion together. And sometimes it was... It, it, was, like a, a, it was water and a Dorito or something for, for me. <laughs> I had really come a long way from being upset about gluten. <laughs> um, the other thing that we can do here that Peter calls us to do or calls the church to do is to look at our own experience and our own history with God and seeing where we've come from and in so doing, not be afraid of what lies ahead as opposed to being stuck in one place. Um, and I, I do think that's valuable as an aside. I think it's valuable to see where we've come from as a way to see the way the Spirit has been leading us. The Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter team was formed in fall of 2014. And when it formed, we had no idea uh, what we were in for, really. Uh, we, the idea was to get our church involved in demonstrations against the police and educate the church about anti-racism. It was the fall of 2014, so it was, it had, it was the summer where, it, early in the summer, Eric Garner had been killed by the police. Later in the summer, Michael Brown in, at Ferguson was killed by the police, and it was, so it was the summer of Ferguson. Um, and our team was getting together because we believed that we our church needed a response. It was essential to us. Even so, we were confronted with people who were skeptical of this idea, um, who came to us and said, and, and said that, and suggested that maybe this was a political thing to do, that for some, that somehow the focus on race instead of class, for instance, was divisive. Uh, that maybe we should be talking about capitalism or something instead. Uh, there was also a skepticism with, with being associated with a movement like Black Lives Matter, a movement that started outside of the church. I think because of uh, certain habits that the church picked up about being skeptical of anything that happens or starts outside of it. Uh, and just like Peter did, our response was, isn't the spirit of God at work in the movement for black lives? 
isn't this already what we have been doing? Don't we already care about our neighbors and ourselves? Didn't we have a, a tent at Occupy? Uh, haven't we protested for Palestinians? Haven't we, don't we care about our neighbors in Kensington? Isn't it, hasn't it been our ethic consistently to disrupt all the ways that the powers oppose and oppress us? Isn't this already what we've been doing? We look to our past, and in so doing, we saw a way forward. Um, basically, what we said was that if God gave them this movement that's happening outside, the gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are we to hinder God? I suspect that the early church might have had a harder time accepting Peter's active inclusion than the writer of Acts lets on. Uh, but even if the writer of Acts is smoothing over history in order to make a rhetorical point, it's still an important one. And his kind of idealized take about how the church reacts to change, as recorded here in Acts 11, the resistant faction of the church responds by being silent and praising God. They have the humility to give up something that they value. They have the humility to be flexible and see how the Spirit can move in new ways and praise God for it. We've been through a tremendous amount of change in the past few years, and it has been hard work to become a more anti-racist community, to become LGBTQIA affirming, to become a more accessible, inclusive community. And uh, tomorrow we're meeting to potentially affirm a new map that could send us in a new direction, maybe a new direction outside of our denomination. I hope that we can face this change with the humility and courage that the writer of Luke Acts wants the church to have. I hope that we can respond with silence and praise. I hope that when people look at us, they can say that we also have the repentance that leads to life. If you could pray with me now. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal God, have mercy on us. Give us the sensitivity to follow your spirit, to be aware of where she has led us, to be aware of where she is leading us, to be silent and to praise you and accept the repentance that you've offered us into new life. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.